If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know um, that it is a book full of existential angst. Is that true? Amen? Some existential angst. But in the second to last verse in Ecclesiastes, which at some points in my life is my favorite book of the Bible, at other points I do not, in fact, want to ever read it again. But in the second to last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer, the preacher, says this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter that he's just written about. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This notion that Christians have duty or have an obligation to God um, is a difficult one, I think, for us today. Because I think that too often when we think about our duty to God, uh, we can often hear the works righteousness coming along right behind it. You have a duty to God to save yourself. When in fact, it's the other way around. Christ has saved you. He has saved you. He loves you. The cross has given you liberation. And therefore, we have a duty to follow Him out of love, out of obedience. We know that Queen Elizabeth, of course, passed a few weeks ago, and as I read articles that um, talked about her and her personal life and also the way that she led as a sovereign, Queen Elizabeth was marked as someone that had a strong sense of duty, a strong sense of duty, first and foremost, to God. She was a devout Anglican, I think still technically on the books, the head of the English church. Is that correct, Father Daniel? Canon Lewis, the supreme governor of the Anglican Church, of which we are part of, personal duty to our Lord, but also a duty to all of England, a personal duty. But as I was reading that, I thought to myself, as a believer, as a Christian, I don't often think about my life as being lived um, out of duty to God. I think we tend to think that that is, in fact, a bad word or a word that we should not use But in fact, we know from our gospel reading that we have a duty to live as a servant to the master. Amen? We have a duty to live as a servant to the master. In the Mishnah, there is this uh, saying, this phrase, Mishnah's collection of writings of Jewish rabbis, and there's this saying, and here, let me read it for you. It says, if you've learned much in the Torah... Claim not merit for yourself. For this purpose, you were created. Let me say that again. If you learned much in the Torah, claim not merit for yourself. For this purpose, you were created. When we serve God, brothers and sisters, when we live in holiness, when we love God, when we love our neighbor, when we follow the commands of our Lord out of the grace that has been given to us, We should not claim merit for ourselves. We were actually created to do it. Created by God to do it and given the grace to do it in this life. Brothers and sisters, when we realize the weight of the grace of God through the cross, we are moved from gratitude and from gratitude to a sense of duty to following our Lord. I love the fact that um, uh, parishioners of this church uh, paid to have this cross handmade and hung above the altar. 
I'm reminded often that when I preach or when we think about the grace of God, we stand under the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in fact paid the debt for humanity and our sins for those who would believe and be baptized into the church. And it's out of the gratitude of knowing what the cross in fact bought for you and for me in this life that we are moved to gratitude and to a sense of duty as we serve the master of our house, the master of the church, the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself. Let us turn to our gospel uh, reading from Luke chapter 17. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it. There's one in front of you. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17. But before we get to verses 5 through 10, I want to back up for a moment. Okay, so you didn't hear this portion read, but let me read it. From Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples, so again, this is not to all humanity at once in time, this is to his followers. Verse 1 of chapter 17. He said, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must what? Forgive him. Now, why do I begin here before we move into the gospel reading that was read? It's to give us a bit of healthy context here. The Lord is saying that as Christians, because of the cross that he would in fact go to, to purchase salvation for us, the forgiveness of sins, we are to forgive those who sin against us and who repent. Am I the only one that feels it nearly impossible most of the time to forgive those that have really sinned against us? Isn't it difficult when you are, I mean, really sinned against in this life by a fellow brother or sister to forgive them? It is so difficult, and yet our Lord says, pay attention to yourselves. Again, I think he knows what the disciples believe, that it is so difficult in and of ourselves to forgive. Ours is, knee-jerk reaction is to not forgiveness, but to judgment. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That is, bring the truth. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What a difficult saying. I feel like the only kind of way we might understand this is that if you have kids or have been around kids or grandkids, you know that there can be this constant like back and forth of like sinning and (laughs) back and forth and asking your kids for forgiveness and them asking you forgiveness as they're being brought up in the Lord. But we're called to forgive. We're called to forgive because of the cross. But then we have, we move into our gospel reading. You see, this request for faith is not just this request by the disciples, the apostles here, for faith in general that would pull a mulberry tree up and move it into the ocean. It's in the context of our Lord saying, you are called to forgive those that, has, that have sinned against you and they're trying to repent. Seven times. Seven times, 77 elsewhere. We are called to be people of forgiveness. And what do the, the disciples do? They say, Lord, increase our faith. 
Who can do this? Who can really forgive another human being in this life? Who can do it? They say, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What a tough saying. What a a tough teaching for us. Our gut instinct is to say, well, I've never moved a mulberry tree into Lake Martin or whatever, I don't know, an azalea bush into Lake Martin, whatever we would say here in the south. What What is this getting at? Our Lord is using hyperbolic language not to say that like your ability to I don't know, think really hard in faith to move something into the ocean. Man, that's going to like save the masses, right? Because they're going to be waiting for you and you're going to do it. Do kind of like this holy mind trick and move it over here. No, no, no. It's in the context of forgiveness. Lord, increase our faith so that we can live a life of forgiveness in this life. So that we can live into the duty that we're called as servants of the master. And he's saying that if you have just the tiniest bit of faith in me, the tiniest modicum of faith in me, you will be able to forgive and not just forgive once, but to forgive over and over for those that are sinning against you and are trying to repent. Faith for forgiveness. And then he does something even weirder is the wrong term. I'm not, I wish I had a thesaurus up here. I'm not, Father Daniel may have another word here for me. Not weird, but strange maybe. As our Lord moves on to verse 7, and he tells this short parable about the unworthy servants. After just dealing with the temptation to sin and to not forgive, the necessity of having faith to forgive, and now he says this, verse 7. Will any one of you who is a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? And dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. What a difficult posture. In a culture, in an age in a time where we want to have accolades poured on us for doing what is expected, this parable hits at home to us. That the Lord is saying He is the master of the house and we are His servants. And that matter of fact, our posture towards Him should be this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So what is this teaching us, brothers and sisters, about the Christian life, about faith? about holiness, about how to live. I think it's teaching us a few things, and one of the most important things is this, that if you do not see yourself primarily as an unworthy servant, then you will be easily tempted to think that God should be the one who is in your debt. (laughs) Maybe if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. God is not in our debt. God is not in our debt. We are in His. And when we serve in His kingdom, we come in knowing ourselves that we are unworthy servants. That when He has asked us to go and to labor in His field, we labor. 
We labor through the difficulty. We labor through the joy. And when we come into his house, we do not come into the master's house saying, in fact, well, hang on, I'm going to go ahead and sit and eat first and foremost. No, we come in and we serve and we serve. And here's the beauty, my brothers and sisters. The Lord does not leave us alone. He feeds us in his house. He has blessed us and saved us and called us his servants. Matter of fact, we as Anglicans come to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion as unworthy servants who are invited to the table to taste and to see that the Lord is good, invited into his house to be workers in his field. If any of you pray morning prayer from our Book of Common Prayer, you've probably prayed the general thanksgiving over and over and over. And it begins like this. We your, see if I can test my Anglicans out here, we your unworthy servants give you humble praise. We, your unworthy servants give you humble praise. One virtue that I think is lacking, it's lacking throughout the church, is this virtue of humility. This virtue that St. Thomas Aquinas said, other than the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, the virtue that is most necessary for Christians to know God and to receive His grace is the virtue of humility. For if we do not have humility in the face of our God who created us, who sent His Son to take on our suffering, our pain, and our sin to liberate us through the cross, if we do not receive Him in humility, we actually won't receive Him. For we will continue in this life to believe that everything we've acquired, that even our salvation itself comes from us, from our striving, not from the cross. We want to be able to confess, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are your unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If we haven't seen or known or experienced the love of the Master in the goodness of the house, then we should come in again and taste and see that he is good and to know that he is the one guiding us in all things. Let me close finally with this, my brothers and sisters. This is a tough saying that we have a duty as Christians. But let me remind you that the Lord gives us grace to follow him, to be his servants to serve him gladly in the fields, to come into his home, his house happily, to serve him with all of our lives, and then finally, to be invited to his table, to eat, to experience that grace. Would that we not look at our Lord with spiritual pride. Would that we receive him in his plans, in his desires for us, with humility. May finally, brothers and sisters, we as Christians at this church be able to say with the servant in this parable, we are your unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.